When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Ronald Reagan was almost Gerald Ford's vice president, and Gerald Ford was almost Ronald Reagan's vice president. And that's a funny thing, because neither man liked the other very much. We'll have that story in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. Squarespace takes the worry and sadness out of website production. Sites look professionally designed regardless of skill level. No coding required. It's all very intuitive. Tools are easy to use, so why not get yourself a website or an online store? Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code WHISTLESTOP and get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Our whistle stop today is the afternoon of Saturday, March 15, 1980. It's a sunny day in Rancho Mirage, California. Former President Gerald Ford, wearing a gray suit, a blue button-down shirt, walks out to meet a handful of reporters near the grapefruit tree in the front yard of his office complex. In what he'd later called the toughest decision of his life, Ford took himself out of the presidential race. America needs a new president, he said. His wife, Betty, was at his side. I have determined that I can best help that cause by not being a candidate for president, which might further divide my party. I'm not a candidate. I will not become a candidate. I will support the nominee of my party with all the energy I have. Ford was deciding not to be divisive in a fight against Ronald Reagan, who was among the Republicans running that year. Of course, as you remember, Reagan had made a quite a different decision in 1976, he divided his party, and Ford blamed Reagan for costing him the presidency against Jimmy Carter by tearing him down in a long and protracted primary fight that went all the way to the convention and then barely campaigning for Ford once he was the nominee in the 1976 general election. Ford walked into his office that day and with a raucous laugh said, if I were a drinking man, I'd have myself a drink. This is the story of the Republican Party before its conservative revolution. Things don't just happen in a snap. And the story of two vice presidential ponderings is another way to look at the evolution and transformation of the GOP. 1976, Ford thought about Reagan to balance out his ticket with a conservative. In 1980, just four years later, Ford was contemplated as a moderate who could help the conservative nominee, Ronald Reagan, moderate his ticket. If you really wanted to hitch up your pants and make a big, bold statement, you could argue that this four-year switch in the balance of power is a perfect way to understand the evolution of the Republican Party, from a party where conservatives were considered a minority to be placated to a force driving the bus in the Republican Party. But let's step back, hitch down the pants, and start at the beginning. When Gerald Ford assumed the presidency in August of 1973, he found himself in need of a vice president. His aide, Bryce Harlow, presented an analysis of 16 possible candidates. Each was graded by experience, geography, standing in the Republican Party, clean image, competence, national stature, age, 
capability to broaden Ford's political base, and whether they had any taint from their association with Nixon. He also judged their ability to hit the three-point shot. Could they do the sweep on the pitch out to the... No, that's not true. Harlow had narrowed it down to two, Bush and Rockefeller. Of Bush, Harlow wrote, strongest across the board, greatest weakness, regarded as intellectually light by many top leaders in the country. And here in this case, of course, we're talking about George Herbert Walker Bush. Offering his best judgment, Harlow wrote, in sum, it would appear that the choice narrows to Bush and Rockefeller. For party harmony, plainly it should be Bush. But generally, that would be construed as weak and a depressingly conventional act, foretelling a presidential hesitance to move boldly in the face of known controversy. By the way, Bush would be a good party pick because Bush was not either too liberal or too conservative. Harlow continues, a Rockefeller choice would be hailed by the media, normally most hostile to Republicans. That's because Rockefeller was seen as a sort of media's favorite Republican. Rockefeller, quote, would encourage estranged groups to return to the party and would signal that this new president will not be captive of any political faction. As for 1976, a Ford-Rockefeller ticket should be an extremely formidable combination against any opponents the Democrats should offer. Therefore, the best choice, Rockefeller. In other words, the political calculus suggested a moderate, not a conservative. Here's how Ford put his thinking when it came to Reagan and Rockefeller, according to James Cannon in his book, Gerald Ford, An Honorable Life. Cannon was uh, Ford's domestic policy advisor. Quote, Ronald Reagan had the California mafia and the hard line right wing. Nelson Rockefeller did not come out first in popularity, but in government experience. This is Ford talking. I had the feeling that in my own situation as president, my background, the way I came in, I needed the strongest possible, the most highly effective person at my side that immediately eliminated Reagan. Well, that's the rational way the president was thinking about it, but that's not the way conservatives saw it. California's Republican conservatives assumed that Reagan would be considered vice president, that he'd be at the top of the list. And to promote his chances, California State Chairman Gordon Luce wired the 49 other state chairmen asking them to support Reagan for the appointment to be Ford's vice president. When that pressure campaign didn't work, conservatives were angry, but they were even more angry when Rockefeller got the nod. Lou Cannon, the great biographer of Reagan, wrote, Ford's selection of Rockefeller a week later was regarded in Sacramento as a slap in the face to Republican conservatives who recalled the California primary battle of 1964. The selection of their old enemy was an unbelievable insult. This, the nomination of Rockefeller to be vice president, Cannon said, quote, more than any other single act of Ford's or indeed all of them combined fueled national interest among conservatives in a Reagan candidacy. So that's why conservatives and Reagan were irritated that Ford didn't pick Reagan in 1976. Now, we all know why Ford was irritated by Ronald Reagan from our two previous episodes of The Whistle Stop about the 1976 campaign. Reagan ran against Ford, and even after Ford dumped Rockefeller from the ticket and picked Bob Dole, that didn't help. What I didn't realize when we did the Ford-Reagan whistle stop is that there is a great account of the meeting in which Ford told Rockefeller he was going to have to step down. Trying to do, basically do things to keep Reagan from running, Ford calls Rockefeller into his office on October 31st, their weekly meeting in the Oval Office, and he asks him to resign. And Rockefeller said, OK, I'll resign. But he argues that Ford was misunderstanding the appetite in the nation for a conservative. Mr. President, Rockefeller said, I'm confident that you will win the nomination. 
and I agree that Reagan is a formidable threat. I believe you have this choice. History will treat you better if you lose the nomination to Reagan, for he will lose the election next year, rather than if you win the nomination by making compromises that will cost you the election. So Rockefeller says he'll step down in 76, but his argument is Ronald Reagan is never going to win the presidency. So as we know, in 1976, getting rid of Rockefeller wasn't enough. And Ford and Reagan go through all of this back and forth. One, one other thing that I had missed in that is that during the campaign, Ford had ordered the release of his annual physical. People had the right to know, he said, and he hoped other candidates would follow suit. Well, this was a sneaky way of making something of Reagan's age. Basically, he was calling on Reagan to release his physical as well. Reagan never did. But these days, when you when we go round and round about candidates releasing their physicals and their tax returns and all of that, this is where it started. Then Ford went on to the next thing after releasing his physical during the 76 race. He released his personal financial statement. Here's what his press secretary said at the time. His own philosophy is not to find those things that some people find to avoid taxes. What the press secretary was suggesting was that Reagan had avoided taxes, and so they needed to look at his personal financial statement. Here's Ford. What I wanted to do, of course, wrote Ford, was put pressure on Reagan to issue a complete financial statement of his own. He was trying to smoke out Reagan because they thought Reagan hadn't paid any income tax in 1970. You remember when they tried to smoke out Mitt Romney in 2012, Harry Reid going to the floor of the Senate and suggesting maybe that Romney hadn't paid his income tax. So everything old is new again. And Ford was a little exasperated because the press had hounded Nixon throughout his whole career about his financials, and they didn't really follow up on his attempt to get Reagan to release his financials. The point is really just about those two little digs is more of the bitterness between Reagan and Ford that was a part of the 76 race than even we had found when we did our previous episodes. So now let's go through. We know how bad the 76 race is, and we find ourselves in that hotel room with Ford counting out his votes on the Xerox sheet. They're in Kansas City. He's won the, the nomination. He's pulling on his pipe. He's beaten Reagan. It's been ugly. But as angry as Ford is, he still needs a conservative. He needs to balance out the ticket. But on the night that Ford wins, before he goes over to meet with Reagan, which was supposed to be a sort of sign of unity in the party, the Reagan people send word that Ronald Reagan does not want to be asked to run as Ford's vice president. So Ford does as he's told, and he doesn't bring it up. And the reason he doesn't bring it up, by the way, is that he says, and he writes this in his autobiography, that he would need Reagan's assistance in the fall campaign. So he didn't want to anger Reagan by asking him to be vice president when Reagan had told him that he didn't want to be. But later, Ford was told that just before he arrived in the hotel room, Justin Dart, one of Reagan's advisors, urged him to say yes if Ford asked him to run. If there is a part of politics that is more like an eighth grade dance than the do si do about whether somebody wants you or doesn't want you to be vice president, even though they've said they don't want it, but they really want it, and on and on, I can't find a, a better example of the eighth grade dance. But anyway, Reagan basically, as A. Justin Dart said, look, if he asks you, it's your patriotic duty. And Reagan had basically said, you're right. If he does ask me, it would be my duty to say yes. But nobody told Ford that. So Ford wrote in his book that after all that had gone down between them, if he knew that Reagan was a possibility for vice president, he might have considered him. But he didn't know. So he flirted for a little while with picking Ann Armstrong, a Texas business executive and rancher, which would have been interesting, the first female vice president Ford would have picked. He decided not to, but settled on Bob Dole. Conservative Reagan approved. 
who would help balance out the ticket and possibly pick up conservative enthusiasm for the fall. Ford later explained the dole pick this way. Quote, I had to pick someone who could get the convention filled with disappointed Reagan supporters to accept with a minimum of controversy. Later, Dole would pick Jack Kemp in 1996 to help his standing with conservatives who were nervous and unenthusiastic about him. So Ford picks Dole because Dole is conservative and balances him out. And Dole in 96 has to pick a conservative Kemp because people don't think Dole is conservative enough. You can see we are trying to hammer into your head this idea of the vice presidential balancing as it went from Ford's first selection when he came into office all the way through the history of Republican politics shows one of the ways in which the Republican Party has become the more conservative party. After the 1976 fight, the emotional breach between Reagan and Ford was enormous because to the way Ford saw it, Reagan had committed two transgressions. The first was breaking the 11th commandment that he always talked about, thou shall not speak ill of fellow Republicans. Well, Reagan went around talking ill of Ford all the time. He may not have made personal attacks, but he basically said that Ford was a part of the corrupt system in Washington, that he was weakening in America, that he was going around the country doling out goodies to people. But the bigger problem for Ford was that Reagan basically just dragged his feet once Ford was the nominee, that he did nothing to get those conservatives who liked Reagan out to vote for Ford. Tom DeFrank has a great book called Write It When I'm Gone, which is a remarkable account of his conversations with Ford, which were off the record at the time, but then after Ford died, were published. And here's DeFrank in that book. Quote, his lack of campaigning was one of the three or four reasons that resulted in my loss to Carter, Ford told DeFrank. To get a sense of how angry Ford was with Reagan, all you have to do is read Ford's autobiography, A Time to Heal. The healing that he's talking about here is the post-Watergate national healing. It's not the Ford-Reagan healing. The book comes out in 1979 when Reagan is clearly an heir apparent to the nomination, but also when Ford is still thinking about running himself. He's not openly hostile to Reagan, but throughout, he basically argues that Reagan cost him the presidency. The antipathy is sort of weaved like marbleized fat in a really good cut of beef. It makes it clear that it was obvious that Reagan's 76 run would harm the nominee and therefore elect a Democrat. Ford frames Reagan's candidacy as a selfish act uh, without ever actually saying so. But then he refers regularly to Reagan's, quote, superficial remedies for all the ills that afflicted America. He repeatedly characterizes Reagan as peddling phony charges and, quote, his inflammatory and irresponsible charges and his, quote, ridiculous charges. He talks about the gall to charge that my administration was preparing to recognize communist North Vietnam. It's just like you can't read it without thinking that Ford was furious at Reagan's pat claims on the campaign trail. And the reason he was irritated, well, there are several of them. One of them was that he felt Reagan was fooling the grassroots voters with simplistic attacks on Ford's policies. Reagan knew how hard it was to govern. He'd made compromises himself as governor in California, raising taxes and not cutting spending. But when attacking Ford, he made it seem like every governing compromise was a deep sellout. Quote, my low standing among Republicans had less to do with any personal antipathy they might have felt towards me, wrote Ford, than with the emotions that Reagan aroused in their hearts. He would go from place to place and deliver variations on the speech. He was a master at oversimplifying complex issues, reducing them to one-line quips, and that was very effective politically, especially among grassroots conservatives. 
Ford is making the identical critique that House Speaker John Boehner made when the Tea Party forced him out. He was arguing that Tea Party rabble-rousers had riled up the grassroots by suggesting a false set of simplifications to them and that they didn't want to engage in the hard business of governing and that they were making these simplifications basically for political gain. Here was John Boehner doing the best he could. These rabble-rousers knew better, but they were presenting the leaders in Washington as sellouts for their own aggrandizement. Another thing that comes through in Ford's book is the number of times he lays off attacking Reagan because he knows he'll need party unity in the end. Ford, if I criticized Reagan personally, and he's talking here about the 1976 race, I would infuriate conservatives whose support I would need in November. In the interest of party unity, I would stick to the high road and hope for the best. He didn't attack Reagan all those times he could have in the race because he wanted Reagan's help in the general election. Of course, help he never got. Years later, Ford's resentment was undiminished. He thought he'd stolen his chance, but also he'd given all those who'd claimed that Ford was an accidental president ammunition. Here's Ford. I enjoyed the process of trying to execute the business of government. It just burned the hell out of me that I got the diversion from Reagan that caused me to spend an abnormal part of my time trying to round up individual delegates and to raise money. Ford had expected to concentrate on governing the first half of 1976, and instead he had to divert time and effort to winning his party's nomination. And the thing that always burned Ford was that he was called an accidental president and his achievements and accomplishments weren't sufficiently heralded. Part of his argument was the reason they weren't is that he, was, he had to spend so much time fighting off Reagan. Here's DeFrank. A politician with a reputation for never holding grudges harbored such uncharacteristic bitterness against Reagan that he never really softened his disdain until November 5, 1994, almost two decades after their nasty 1976 primary tussle. That was the day Reagan announced to the nation he'd come down with crippling Alzheimer's disease. But let's go from Ford's A Time to Heal in 1979 to his flirtation in 1980, before he is at the Rancho Mirage office complex with the grapefruit trees. This is before that. He's flirting with running in 1980, and it's fueled by about three things, all of them largely emotional. He wanted to avenge his loss to the president, Carter, who he thought had become a disaster. He also desperately longed to exercise this accidental president chatter, the whispers that were galling him like crazy, that he'd simply never had what it took to be elected in his own right, and that he'd only gained the White House as a kind of fluke of history. I mean, think about that. He was elevated to the vice presidency by Agnew's issues, and then he was elevated to the presidency because of Nixon's issues, so never elected to the office. He also relished the payback prospect of denying Reagan the prize. So in 1980, longtime loyalists like Henry Kissinger and others urged him to run. Thomas Reed, who was a former secretary of the Air Force, formed a draft Ford committee, two governors of big states whose electoral votes were crucial. Jim Rhodes of Ohio and Bill Clements of Texas lobbied Ford hard to make the race. And in March of 1980, Ford tells the New York Times, speaking about Reagan, a very conservative Republican can't win a national election. During one tirade during that period about Carter, who Ford thought was ruining the country and could easily be taken out, he held up his thumb and his forefinger after talking about how horrible Carter was, about an inch apart, and he said, and Reagan's only that much better. That's from Blue Smoke and Mirrors uh, from Jules Whitcover and Jack Germond. 
more from Ford during this period. I'm deeply dedicated to certain economic and foreign policy principles that affect this country. If I believe that the choice of the Republican Party is going to be preempted by somebody who strays wildly off or away from those principles, I'm going to be active. And this is how DeFrank translates that statement in 1980. Quote, the thought of Ronald Reagan becoming my party's nominee makes me want to puke. But ultimately, as we know from the beginning of this whole affair, Ford doesn't get into the race in the end. But just because Ford doesn't want to run doesn't mean that Reagan doesn't want him to run as his number two. Reagan's early defeat of Bush in the primaries in 1980 gave him more time to consider a running mate than other presidents have been given. And it was more than just a passing thing to think about the number two when you're as old as Reagan was. The odds were that the person who picked for the number two slot might very well have to jump into the top post. Even though Reagan had so much time, like the McGovern vice presidential pick, which led to the disastrous Eagleton affair, things went horribly wrong, despite the fact that everybody promised that they weren't going to do it as sloppily as it had been done before. As German and Whitcover put it in Blue Smoke and Mirrors, Reagan's selection of his vice president was a classic case history in how not to choose a running mate. In May of the election year, Dick Worthlin, Reagan's pollster, floated the idea of Ford running with him. Polls showed that Ford would be a good pick, and someone within Ford's circle was sending messages that he might be willing. So here was the argument for Ford. He appealed to a different coalition. He didn't need startup time. He could campaign the day after he was selected, and it would be a dramatic event. And since it was going into a close election, Ford might make the crucial difference between winning and losing. Reagan also wasn't that interested in George Bush. He thought he'd been weak and deceptive in that Nashua showdown from our previous whistle stop. Remember that I paid for this microphone moment? That was about more than just showing Reagan's strength in a superficial way. That moment created an impediment for Reagan, who thought it said something about Bush's character. Reagan also didn't like Bush for other reasons, calling his economic plans voodoo economics. They didn't have the same position on the Equal Rights Amendment and, and abortion. But that Nashua moment was something that Reagan remembered. Stuart Spencer Ford's 1976 campaign manager was contacted by Reagan's lieutenants about a possible Ford run. And Spencer asked Ford if he should respond to the Reagan men. And Ford replied, hell no. So that was that. That was in May. But then on Saturday, June 12th, Ford arrived in Detroit, where the convention was to be held. And he told his aides that he was thinking about leaving the 1980 Republican convention for fear that somebody might try to draft him. That's because the talk was in the air, prompted by stories like one in the New York Times in which Worthlin, Reagan's strategist, said that every vice president that you would add to the Reagan ticket hurt the ticket, except for Ford, who, when you made it a Reagan-Ford ticket, improved Reagan's poll numbers. But the bitterness still lingered. A book published about the time that the GOP convention was being held by Robert Hartman, Ford's closest aide for years, referred to Reagan as, quote, George Wallace with a little more polish. So when Reagan arrived at the convention in Detroit, he was told that Ford was not going to join the ticket. But Reagan still didn't want to settle for Bush. There was no way he was going to pick Bush, said Stu Spencer. Reagan just plain didn't like the guy. So when Reagan and Ford met at the convention, Reagan was still looking for an out, and he looked like he was putting on the hard sell with Ford. And in fact, he gave Ford a gift. And what was it? It was an old, authentic peace pipe. Okay, so that begins the courtship. Ford has said hell no, but Reagan really wants to make the pitch again. He gives him the peace pipe, and then they don't know where to go from there. But then Ford speaks to the convention, and the crowd loves it. 
he beats the bejesus out of Carter. And everybody in the Reagan suite, hotel suite, is watching him, and they're thinking, boy, we'd like that guy on the ticket. And then they started to listen to what else he was saying. And they thought, why would the scalded ex-president work so hard on a speech if not to position himself as a possible number two? When Ford spoke, Reagan strategist Worthland said later, we thought he was sending us very strong signals. We thought, in essence, he was saying the door's open. Well, that's because Ford was saying things like, quote, I'm not ready to quit yet. And he talked about doing everything he could for the ticket, working harder and longer than anyone else. Quote, elder statesmen are supposed to sit quietly and smile wisely from the sidelines, Ford said. I've never been much for sitting. Reagan told Whitcover and Germond in their Blue Smoke and Mirrors book, I must say, we all got swept away with the idea of making one more run at Ford. The next day, a coalition of governors, senators, and members of Congress visited Reagan to discuss his number two, and he brought up Ford, and they were all shocked. They thought the idea was out of the question. But then they were all in favor. Boy, once they thought it was a possibility, they were all out there lobbying for it. And here's Governor Pete DuPont making the case to Dan Rather on the CBS Evening News. Walter Cronkite asked about uh, reports that there's a governor's movement to draft Gerald Ford. Do you know anything about that? Was that discussed today? Every one of us in that room, Dan, feel that Jerry Ford would make the best possible ticket with Governor Reagan. I believe that ticket would sweep every region of the country, every philosophy. That would be the best. But a lot of us don't really feel that uh, President Ford would be willing to do that. Would you be amazed if Gerald Ford changed his mind and finally said, well, I'll do it for the good of the party in the country? I'd be delighted. I don't know whether I'd be amazed or not, but I wish he'd do it because he'd make a whale of a candidate. With the convention delegates all in Detroit and Reagan and Ford there, it started to be referred to as the dream ticket. That afternoon, Reagan met again with Ford, and there was no more veiled peace pipe offerings. He was giving him the straight up sell. Reagan said, I know what I'm asking. And I know that you've made it plain already that you didn't want anything of the kind. But I'm asking, will you please reconsider? Ford said no and cited what he had been citing in the papers, which is the 12th Amendment, which he said wouldn't allow electors of a state to pick two people from that state on the same ticket. Reagan was ready with a little white paper that he handed Ford with a legal opinion that explained how that wasn't really going to be an impediment if they wanted to run together. Then Reagan's team called Kissinger, who, think about it, called Kissinger, the guy that Reagan had been so critical of in the 1976 campaign, saying he was selling out the country to the Soviets. They called Kissinger and asked him to try and convince Ford. Then they enlisted other members of the Ford administration, Dick Cheney, Alan Greenspan. Ford went from being against the idea altogether to asking, well, exactly what would the terms be for this kind of arrangement? Would he be able to have an actual role in the government? He didn't want to simply be a standby vice president. There were some discussions about whether some members of administration might be able to join the gang, like would Kissinger and Greenspan be able to come into a a Reagan administration? Then Dick Cheney intervened in what has to be one of the great and historically amusing moments. Here's an account of his pitch from Blue Smoke and Mirrors. Look, boys, there are two possible approaches to take. One is to say they're going to make this a meaningful job and beef it up, and I don't think that would work. The other way is to say this is a really rotten, stinking job, but we want you to do it for the good of the country and the party. That would be the only way to do it. We're talking to a guy who has been vice president and has been president. If some of us think it is his responsibility to the country to take a crummy job for four years to assure Carter getting out of there, then fine. Let's go in there and tell him that. But don't go in and try and tell him it's going to be a wonderful job. He knows better. He's been vice president. Dick Cheney, as we all know, would later become vice president partially on the promise that the office would be more than it ever had been. And in fact, he made it so. 
More senators came to Ford, urging him to run as the rumor got out. News started to leak, and everyone liked the idea. It was picking up steam, but Ford was still adamant that he didn't want to do it. But he let the negotiations continue. The back and forth over what kinds of powers he would have grew, and it got so detailed that the Reagan men started to worry that they were starting to give away the presidency. Reagan was still going to be president after all, right? So while the negotiations are going on, Ford kept a commitment to Walter Cronkite to sit down with him on the CBS Evening News with his wife, Betty. As Ford waited to go on, he saw Dan Rather reporting about how the dream ticket talks were progressing, and it irritated him. I was shocked, said Ford, because there was nothing substantive that coincided with Rather's predictions. And so on the show with Walter, I tried to balance it out. In the interview, Ford put out his terms for the job. Quote, I would not go to Washington and be a figurehead vice president. If I go to Washington, and I'm not saying that I'm accepting, I have to go there with the belief that I will play a meaningful role across the board in the basic and the crucial and important decisions. Cronkite asked him about his pride being damaged about taking the number two, or President Reagan's pride being damaged at having a co-presidency. Ford never used that term co-presidency, but he didn't disagree with it. And that term, co-presidency, rocketed around the Joe Lewis arena in Detroit throughout the convention. Pause for a moment and reflect back on 1976. At Ford's convention, Reagan's name was on everyone's lips. Now, at Reagan's convention in 1980 in Detroit, Ford's name was the one being passed around by eager delegates. Reagan and his team just happened to be watching the news that night, like any right-thinking Americans. They were, of course, glued to the CBS Evening News. When they heard Ford and the term co-presidency, Reagan sat up like his cushion had been electrified. The whole negotiation had gotten totally out of hand. They'd been trying to keep it close to the vest, and now here was Ford on national TV laying out his terms. The interview was being accepted by everyone else as proof that the Reagan-Ford ticket was a done deal. And the rumors made their way onto the airways that basically... Not only was it a done deal, but Reagan and Ford were making their way to the Joe Louis Arena in Detroit to announce their candidacy. Ford was watching this on TV with his friend David Hume Kennerly, who had been his photographer in the White House. And as he saw those reports of how Ford and Reagan were making their way to the arena, Kennerly turned to Ford and said, Are you on your way over to the convention hall? Ford responded, Not to my knowledge. George Romney, the Michigan delegate, offered to put a draft Ford resolution forward. Reagan's got two problems. He's an amateur. He's not experienced in Washington, and he's ultra-conservative, said Romney. Ford would answer both questions, and the ticket would sweep the convention. Senator Paul Laxalt was rhapsodizing about Ford as the deputy president, or super director, of the office of the president. As evening fell, it was accepted wisdom that Reagan was picking Ford. Reagan called Ford, whose men were still negotiating what the terms of the arrangement would be, and Ford said, I need to sleep on it. And Reagan said, you can't sleep on it. The, the convention's in a frenzy. If you wait till the next day, it would be a huge letdown and damage whoever the actual choice was if Ford decided not to do it. And Reagan's men worried that the tension of that kind of backtrack would look like a double cross so that if they waited overnight, they'd have to name Ford and accept his conditions because otherwise it would look like they had cut him off at the last minute. And again, it would undermine whoever the ultimate pick was. So they got to make the decision and not sleep on it. Okay, the phones hang up. And then shortly thereafter, basically simultaneously, Reagan and Ford both decide it's the wrong thing to do. Reagan couldn't give up as much power, and Ford didn't want the job where he'd have to fight for every inch. The former president headed over to see Reagan at about 11.20 in the evening, and they agreed it wasn't going to work out. And basically that the solution of the Reagan-Ford ticket was going to cause more problems than it would solve. After the meeting, Reagan said, now where the hell is George Bush? 
Well, Bush was in his hotel suite drinking a beer in a bit of a funk. He, like everyone else, had watched the Ford and Cronkite event on TV and assumed that that was the ticket. He had just returned from speaking to the convention, and before he had left to give the speech to the convention, a worker in the hotel greeted him and said, I'm sorry, Mr. Bush, I'm really sorry, I was pulling for you. And Bush said, sorry about what? And the hotel worker said, you hadn't heard, it's all over. Reagan has picked Ford as his running mate. Well, that was a hell of a thing to hear. And then Bush had to carry on and give his speech to the convention, which is a tough thing to do. But now he was back in his hotel drinking a beer, and so he gets the call from Reagan offering him the job. He assumed it was the consolation call. So he was shocked. But nobody was more shocked than the country who was watching all the confusion going on, all the rumors of Ford and Reagan showing up. And here's how the confusion was relayed on the air on the CBS Evening News. Uh, Jerry Bowen, that he'd be coming here to this uh, convention to explain what's been going on without, uh, without uh, reaching some conclusion for this convention and leaving them hanging overnight? Well, I really can't, especially uh, after all the speculation that we've heard tonight, and especially after uh, your rather revealing and candid interview with uh, former President Ford, which uh, seemed to uh, be a signal, uh, if I might say, uh, to, the, uh, to the Reagan forces. Incidentally, Walter, uh, Governor Reagan was not uh, watching uh, uh, any television at that point, but uh, his aides were, and uh, they were astounded by uh, what they heard from President Ford. As uh, has been reported by our floor reporters and by you uh, earlier in the evening, uh, the staffs have been working on this uh, arrangement. Uh, late reports indicated that uh, it might not be uh, working out. Uh, now it appears that uh, Governor Reagan is going to have something to say about uh, the status of uh, those negotiations. Jerry, was there astonishment over the fact that uh, Jerry Ford would have revealed the details of his negotiations to the extent he did to us on, in that interview? I think astonishment is uh, probably an understatement, Walter. I mean, they weren't astonished that such a deal was under underway. They knew that, but they did not know that he was going to reveal that much. No, they, they had no idea. And uh, as uh, one of his aides said, uh, there was a flurry of activity uh, after uh, they saw the interview. Uh, they informed the, co the uh, governor uh, they did not relay his comments. Jerry, uh, you did say that the motorcade already was en route when you took air a moment ago, right? Yes, sir, that's correct. Well, then it must be here. It can't take over a minute and a half in a presidential-type motorcade, a presidential candidate-type motorcade, to run down that, uh, that uh, freeway, practically, that, that embankment uh, to this hall. So we've got to assume that that car is out and back right now and that, uh, that probably uh, the candidate is already in this building and uh, back behind the podium there awaiting uh, an announcement to go on. Leslie Stahl, thank you, Jerry, very much. Great work. Leslie Stahl has made uh, has more on why this demonstration is being prolonged. Uh, uh, Leslie? Oh, Walter, I am just being told by a high lieutenant that the choice is Bush. I am being told that the choice is Bush. He's telling me I can go with it. Uh, I'm being told for sure. Apparently, the deal fell through. A couple of senators were just called off the floor into the trailer, and somebody came running out, came running up to me, one of the top lieutenants from the trailer. He said that Reagan is here to Stall, that's the most amazing piece of news we've heard since we heard it was Ford. Now, hold on just a second. Who told you that? Walter, a, a top lieutenant just came and said, it's not Ford. They're coming all around me to tell me it's not Ford. Someone told me it was Bush. They said it's absolutely definite. Go with it. They're all yelling Bush all around me. Everybody's yelling Bush, Walter. Bush? They're telling me Bush, Walter. Reagan right. lieutenants, men with colored hats all around, telling me Bush. Well, they better 
adrenaline up here to the anchor booth. In the end, Ronald Reagan swallowed hard and picked George Bush, who had once been very close to becoming Ford's vice president. The drama with Gerald Ford was over. If the naming of a vice president is the first test of the presidential skill, then Reagan basically flubbed it. The ragged process made George Bush look like sloppy seconds. The papers were full of stories with Reagan's reservations about his number two, including one report that said Reagan didn't think Bush was presidential. At a press conference the next day, Bush was reminded of his differences with Reagan on abortion and the Equal Rights Amendment, and he said, please... Please don't keep reminding me of the differences. I'm trying to get on the same wavelength. Well, obviously they did. Unlike McGovern's disastrous pick of his vice president, Reagan's hiccup didn't hurt him one bit in the end. Our producer is Mike Wollo. Our executive producer is Steve Lichting. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Whistlestop is a part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our whistle-stop crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who would be on any person's shortlist for vice president, proving once again that he is the synthesis candidate. Squarespace is our sponsor. It takes the worry and sadness out of website production. Sites look professionally designed. So start your free trial today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code WHISTLESTOP and get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. I'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. I'm John Dickerson. From executive producers Kevin Spacey and Dana Brunetti comes a new CNN original series, Race for the White House. CNN's riveting six-part docu-series, Race for the White House, digs deep to reveal the most controversial tactics and game-changing strategies used throughout presidential elections in American history. From Andrew Jackson to Bill Clinton, follow 12 presidential hopefuls through six cutthroat races that change the way we vote and how campaigns are run. Uncover the real reasons some became powerful while others failed. With disastrous debates, PR mishaps, bribes, and schemes, Race for the White House will challenge the way you think about American politics. Race for the White House series premieres Sunday, March 6th at 10 p.m. Eastern on CNN.